Thank you for listening to the preaching ministry of Oxford Baptist Church with our pastor, Andy Brown. We pray you'll be blessed as you apply these truths to your life. Well, I hope you have your Bible today, and I invite you to take that Bible and join me in the book of Matthew, chapter 6, as we continue here today looking at the Lord's Prayer, or as we've come to call it at Oxford, the prayer that the Lord has given us, this magnificent prayer here at the very heart of the Sermon on the Mount. And here's a question for you as uh, you're turning over to Matthew chapter 6. I want to ask you, since we've been studying this prayer in uh, such great detail, have you noticed any changes in your life? Have you noticed maybe the affections that you have changing? Does your heart beat a little faster? Maybe the top of your head tingles a little bit as you think about prayer. Have the thoughts of praying to our Father who art in heaven, whose name is holy, whose kingdom is coming, who's the giver of our bread, who is the uh, sustainer and deliverer of us, the forgiver of our debts. Has praying to Him and praying this prayer changed the way you pray? I sure do hope so. If anything... This prayer directs our lives to long for God, to revere God, to desire God, to depend upon God, and to hope in Him. So let's read the prayer together in full this morning. Begin in verse 9. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. I tell you what, let's do this. Why don't we say it out loud together? You all have a Bible in front of you, hopefully. Hopefully, if not, you've got either your Bible has a binding or a, a battery. Either way, get something in front of you. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 9. Let's read it together. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful that you love us with a never-ceasing, all-sustaining love. And Father, as we embark upon this time together as thinking about this wonderful prayer that you've given us. You've given us this prayer so that our minds would be arrested with your glory and elevated to the heights of your perfection. So do that now in our minds. Help us to not be distracted, but instead help us to meet with you through your word and the power of your spirit. We pray these things in the name of Jesus, to the glory of the Father. And all of those who are His say, Amen. Now at the end of this prayer, I love it because we've made it all the way through. Here we are at the end. And we see these three personal petitions. Bread, forgiveness, and deliverance. Do you see those? Bread, forgiveness, and deliverance. These three petitions encapsulate the life of the Christian who has been exposed to the reality of God. Bread, 
forgiveness, and deliverance. Bread is essential for life. Forgiveness is essential for fellowship. Deliverance from temptation and evil are essential for the unhindered pursuit of God's glory. Our whole life is a journey. God has called us to Himself away from darkness into His marvelous light. And this life of a Christian, I hope you understand this, this life that we have in Christ is now a journey, a glorious journey of the pursuit of the Lord. I remember Dr. Charles Stanley. He has a book that you should get. He's written it a few years ago. It's called The Handbook of Christian Living. Well, you may have an older copy of that book, The Glorious Journey. And that's exactly where we are. We are on this glorious journey. And the reason it's glorious is because God has called us away from darkness to pursue His magnificence. He's called us away from pursuing our own lust, our own desires that lead to death. A way to pursue His glory. And thankfully, the good news this morning is that we're not alone in this pursuit. If you've ever read The Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan has this allegory of of Christian. And Christian, he's heading to the celestial city and he faces all kind of dangers and temptations and snares. And Bunyan, as he's writing that from a prison because of preaching the gospel, he understands that the Christian life is filled full of temptations, trials, and snares. And so we're called to pursue this glorious God. And thankfully, we're not alone in our pursuit. Thankfully, we have the promised power of the very person of God, the Holy Spirit, to lead us all the way. And we are confident That He who began this good work in us will deliver us safely to the shores of His celestial city. As Cyprian, the bishop of Carthage, in the 200s once said, listen to this. We ought never to forget, brethren, that we have renounced the world. We are living here now as aliens and only for a time. When the day of our homecoming puts an end to our exile, frees us from the bonds of the world and restores us to paradise and to a kingdom, we should welcome it. What man stationed in a foreign land would not want to return to his own country as soon as possible? Well, we look upon paradise as our country, and a great crowd of our loved ones awaits us, a countless throng of parents, brothers, and children, Longs for us to join them. Assured that they are of their own salvation, they're still concerned about ours. What joy both for them and for us to see one another and embrace. Oh, the delight of that heavenly kingdom where there is no fear of death. Oh, the supreme and endless bliss of everlasting life. There is the glorious band of apostles. There the exultant assembly of prophets. There, the innumerable host of martyrs crowned for their glorious victories in combat and death. There, in triumph, are the virgins who subdue their passions by the strength of countenance. There, the merciful are rewarded. Those who fulfilled the demands for justice by providing for the poor. In obedience to the Lord's command, they turned their earthly patrimony into Heavenly treasure. My dear brethren, he continues, let all our longing be to join them as soon as we may. 
May God see our desire. May Christ see this resolve that springs forth in us from faith. For He will give the rewards of His love more abundantly to those who have longed for Him more fervently. In the final petition of this prayer, there is a reality as well as there is a longing. Look at verse 13. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. A reality and a longing. Well, what's the reality? The reality is temptation. The reality is evil. Maybe that's not what we want to hear. Well, that's okay. The Bible deals in true terms. That's the reality. But that's not the only thing that it says. There's also a longing. The longing is deliverance. Deliverance that comes from the hands of the one whose wounds have crushed the head of the serpent, and by his wounds he has brought our healing. Now, I know that there's some who you'd rather not talk about warfare or spiritual warfare or those types of things, but those who dismiss the truth of spiritual warfare, if you just want to gloss over the uh, idea that there's an enemy out there that's seeking someone whom he may devour, then you do so to your own peril. There are powers at work in this world that you and I can't even imagine. There are powers that are seeking to sift our souls, but the Lord has prayed for us. And not only has He prayed for us, He's also given us a prayer to aid in our warfare. Now, when we're talking about spiritual warfare, because that's what this is, right? Look at verse 13. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. He's inviting us to pray, inviting us into this prayer of letting us know that there are temptations and there are evils that we need to be delivered from. And so when we're talking about spiritual warfare, there seems to be two extremes that we need to avoid. One is that there's some who they don't pay any attention to the devil. They don't pay any attention to his schemes. And the other extreme is those who see the devil behind every bush. And they blame everything on the devil. The devil made me do it, this, that, and the other. But both extremes need to be avoided, and the reason is because both extremes are perversions of the truth of God. If there is any complacency in us about spiritual warfare, then the prayer that the Lord has given us sets our focus on the reality of spiritual warfare. This prayer is a call to war. This prayer that we have is a call that the Lord has given us, the church, to arise and put our armor on. And if our thoughts of spiritual warfare are overdramatic, that we see the devil behind every bush, then this prayer shows us that we must take some responsibility for the temptation that comes our way. Eve could say, the devil made me do it. But who made Adam do it? Let's look at the final petition of this prayer. Let's learn two truths. And I want to teach us this morning two truths. Learn that by praying this way, we can be sure that Jesus, our Savior, is leading us all the way. So number one, what I want us to learn is that Jesus has begun the revolution. Remember how dynamic it was for Moses to go into Pharaoh's presence 
and declare, Thus saith the Lord, let my people go. You remember how dramatic that must have been? We read about that when we were maybe in children's church or maybe last week in our Bible study, maybe this morning, who knows? But think about how dramatic it must have been for this guy who used to be the prince of Egypt, this guy who had murdered an Egyptian, who fled to the wilderness, who had now been a shepherd for many years, now to come back and to declare to the mightiest empire in the world to walk into the chamber of Pharaoh and say, Thus saith the Lord, let my people go. How dramatic must that have been? But Jesus... Listen carefully, because we know, because this is what he's done. At the banks of the Jordan River, he's been baptized. John's declared him the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He's now standing on a mountain, delivering a sermon as the true and better Moses. Jesus has come to lead the new exodus. Jesus has come to lead the final exodus as he takes his people to the promised land. So Christ has come, remember this, He set His foot down on enemy territory. He has come in a world that's devastated by sin, devastated by darkness, as a light shining into the world. He has come to His own humanity. And His whole life that He is bringing is declaring this message, I am Lord, Caesar is not. I am King, Satan is not. I have come to establish my kingdom. He's taught us to pray, Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so his whole ministry as he's feeding the hungry, as he's healing the lame, the lepers, as he's raising the dead, we're watching as he's walking on water, commanding the seas, and they obey. We're watching this Jesus and everything that he's doing. As we're listening to this, as we're watching it, his whole life is singing a song that by the time it reaches our ears, it gives us this deep sense of longing welling up inside of us. It's like we hear an echo of something that we've seen before. All of us want healing. If you had a a condition of leprosy, who would not come to Jesus to be healed? He has the longing of every person's heart in Himself. And so when we see the things that He does, and we see the portrayal of Him as He's coming, we hear this memory in our minds, this longing that we have welling up inside of us. And C.S. Lewis His entire apologetic could be summed up in that one word, longing. Listen to how he put it in his essay, The Weight of Glory. In speaking of this desire for our own far-off country, when we find in ourselves, even now, I feel a certain shyness. Lewis says, I'm almost committing an indecency. I'm trying to rip open the inconsolable secret in each one of you, the secret which hurts so much that you take your revenge on it by calling it names like nostalgia and romanticism and adolescence. The secret also which pierces with such sweetness that when in very intimate conversation the mention of it becomes imminent. We grow awkward and affect to laugh at ourselves. The secret we cannot hide and cannot tell, though we desire to do both. We cannot tell it because it's a desire for something that has never actually appeared in our experience. We cannot hide it because our experience is constantly suggesting it and we betray ourselves like lovers at the mention of the name. Our commonest expedient is to call it beauty and behave as if that had settled the matter. And then Lewis goes on speaking of an English poet, William Wordsworth. He says, Wordsworth's expedient was to identify it with certain moments in his own past. But all this is a cheat. 
If Wordsworth had gone back to those moments in the past, he would not have found the thing itself, but only the reminder of it. What he remembered would turn out to be itself a remembering. The books of the music in which we thought the beauty was located will betray us if we trust to them. It was not in them. It only came through them. And what came through them was longing. The memory of our own past are good images of what we really desire. Listen, this is important. But if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols. Breaking the hearts of their worshipers. For they are not the thing itself. They're only the scent of a flower we've not found. The echo of a tune we've not heard. News from a country we've never yet visited. You see what the prayer that the Lord has given us has done? He's created in us this longing. Look, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And the good news this morning is that Jesus hasn't just come to put a longing in our hearts. He's come to be the summation of all of our longings. Jesus has come to satisfy us as He delivers us, as He saves us. He didn't send an angel or an emissary. He Himself has come to us. God has condescended by Without ceasing to be what He was, He became what He was not, so that in His condescension He could take that humanity and lift us up to Himself. This is why He teaches us from behind enemy lines to flee temptation, to pray, deliver us. You see, because look back just for a moment in chapter 4. After Jesus is baptized, after He publicly identifies Himself for the plan and purpose of God, what's the next thing that happens to Jesus in chapter 4? What happens? He's tempted. It's His own temptation. Now what does He do in the temptation? He goes in a wilderness and does what Adam and Eve were incapable of doing in a garden paradise. I don't know anyone else who's necessarily been tempted by the devil himself. We only know of a couple of people who were tempted by the devil. Well, Judas, of course, the devil entered him. And, of course, we know Adam and Eve were tempted by Satan himself. But Jesus was tempted by Satan himself. Oh, the powers that must have been at work there. But there was a greater working power that was there, which enabled the Christ to stand firm. So here he is behind enemy lines after already telling the devil, be gone, and the devil leaving him until an opportune time. Here he calls us behind enemy lines to stand, to face temptation, to flee the enemy and all of his devices, and to pray, deliver us. Don't think lightly about this prayer, beloved. This prayer is a call to war. This prayer is a call to fight the fight of faith and never give in to the desires of the flesh. This prayer is a prayer to live in light of the kingdom and the reality of Christ and His coming. This prayer is an invitation to live a life fully pleasing to God and and as a key weapon in our warfare. He didn't give us a sword or arrows. He gave us a prayer. 
I wonder how much evil we would engage in. How much temptation we would succumb to if we had the right frame of mind, the frame our Lord is giving us, if when that temptation comes, we had the right frame of mind to get on our knees and pray our Father in heaven, whose name is Hollywood, whose kingdom is coming, deliver me. I don't know, but I think that if we could do that, I don't know what kind of temptation it is. Everyone's tempted in different ways, but it's all the lust of the flesh, the pride of life. It's all based on those things. But what if that temptation, when it came to us, no matter what form it was, if it was greed, if it was lust, if it was sex, if it was any of these things, whatever, if it was pride, if it was anger, whatever temptation that is, if it came to us, what if we had the right frame of mind in that moment when we felt temptation at its hottest to do what our Lord says and get on our knees and pray, deliver me, deliver me. Knowing that, as Paul says in Corinthians, he himself will provide a way of escape. But how often do we succumb to that temptation because we would rather have the temptation than the sweetness of our Lord? You know when we'll kill sin in our life? This is it. Listen. When we learn to desire God first, above all things, that's when we'll kill sin. That's when temptation won't rock our lives. When finally, through sanctification, through moment after moment after moment, failure after failure and forgiveness after forgiveness, finally we come to that place where we desire God more than we desire anything in this world. Leonard Ravenhill said one time, No man is greater than his prayer life. The pastor who is not praying is playing The people who are not praying are straying. We have many organizers, but few agonizers. Many players and payers, few prayers. Many singers, few clingers. Lots of pastors, few wrestlers. Many fears, few tears. Much fashion, little passion. Many interferers. Few intercessors. Many writers, but few fighters. Failing here, we fail everywhere. But think about what this prayer is. This prayer is Jesus letting us know we now have ground that we can stand. Instead of succumbing to the temptation, now we can get on our knees and put our knees into the earth and we can pray Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. He's given us that. You see, there's no need for failure. Jesus has begun the revolution. We're on His side. There's no need for failure because Jesus has secured our victory. That's the second point this morning. And we must remember that while Jesus taught us this prayer, listen, this is important. Jesus is the one who taught us this prayer. But when Jesus prayed this prayer, the Father told him no. As Jesus was praying in the garden for deliverance, the garden of Gethsemane, remember, he prayed for deliverance. Then what did he say? Do you remember? Jesus prayed as he taught us to pray earlier in the prayer on the mount, as 
As we learned a few weeks ago that the most difficult, challenging thing to say is your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And as Jesus is praying, deliver me from evil. And as the Father silently says no, what does Jesus say? Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. So you and I must remember that the servant is not above his master. Our master was led into temptation and he was temporarily delivered over to evil. All for us. All so that the darkness of that day could yield the dawn of the new creation as up from the grave he arose with a mighty triumph over his foes. This Jesus arose, the victor of the dark domain, and he lived forever with his saints Rain. As the Lutheran theologian Albert Schweitzer said, Jesus was called to throw himself on the wheels of world history so that even though it crushed him, it might start to turn in the opposite direction. Did you hear that? Jesus was called to throw himself on the cog of the wheel of world history. And even though it crushed him, he enabled that wheel to start turning in the opposite direction. Jesus has begun the revolution. The revolution that Jesus begun is a revolution that will one day be as secure as the borders of his kingdom covers the earth. That's the revolution that Jesus has begun. He has secured our victory because when He prayed this prayer, the Father told Him no. So that it would enable, when we pray, the Father to say yes for us. Because He was bruised for our iniquities. Not His own iniquities, but for ours. He faced the defeat of death so that He could overcome death through His life so that we could have victory in His name. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. Some of you already, you're thinking, man, pastor, this sounds like a lot of fluff that you're talking about, but you haven't even dealt with the text yet. There's a question that I have in my mind floating around that you haven't even dealt with. You've been glossing over the revolution, victory. What about this whole idea of leading us into temptation? Since the beginning of our reading the prayer, you've been struggling with this whole idea of of God leading us into temptation. I know. Because we are all more at ease with the idea of the Lord delivering us from evil than leading us into temptation, aren't we? So what are we to make of this? How are we to read this in a way that's satisfactory to the whole counsel of God where Jesus teaches us to pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil? Well, in order to understand that, we have to do a little study. We have to do a little digging. The word here... For temptation is perosmos. Say that with me. Perosmos. Now, that's good. That's a different word than the word perazo. Say that one. Perazo. So you hear perosmos, perazo. In the Strong's, this concordance if you're interested in Greek, the difference in the wordings is one Strong's number. One's 985, the other's uh, 986, something like that. These words are close. But remember, Greek is a, a very specific language, and so what's the difference? Well, the difference is, we have to understand it, the word here for temptation is different than another word that James uses in James chapter 1 and verse 13. Now listen to what James 1.13 says. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. 
For God cannot be tempted with evil, and He Himself tempts no one. Whoa, 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 right? What do you mean? Let no one say when he is tempted. I thought that Jesus just told us to pray, lead us not into temptation. Who are we talking to? Are we praying to God? Yes. So what are we to make of this? Well, the same word in our English refers to two different things. It's just like this. When I tell Adelie that I'm marrying someone, as a pastor, I go to Adelie and say, this Saturday I'm marrying someone. She says, Daddy, I thought you were married to Mommy. And I say, well, darling, I am married to mommy. I'm performing the wedding of two who are being married. I am marrying them, but they are getting married. You see how confusing that is for a six-year-old? Maybe it's confusing for us as well. But we all know the difference, don't we? It's the same kind of distinction that's going on here. Let me see if I can make it maybe a little more clear. And really what I want to do is I'm, I'm trying to teach you this morning that if we have an unclear passage like this, if it causes our minds to say, what do you mean lead us not into temptation? How do we pair that with what James says, that God tempts no one? Well, the best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself. So let's keep going. James helps us, the brother of Jesus. He says in chapter 1 and verse 1 and 2, James is going to use Matthew's term. Now remember what Matthew's term is? It's perasmo, not perazo. So listen to what he says. Count it all joy, brethren, when you meet various trials, perosmos. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. You see the difference? God tempts no one. He says that a little later. And he's using this word, trial, here. To teach us the difference. James says something else. He says, count it all joy when you encounter various trials. Wait a minute, wait a minute. That's another problem, isn't it? Because Jesus has just said, lead us not into temptation. Now James is saying, well, if you do face it, count it all joy. What are we supposed to do? Listen, here's the difference between a trial and a temptation. God may send us a trial to strengthen our faith. Temptations are sent to cause us to stumble. God would never send us something with the intention of making us stumble. The trial sent by God to strengthen us, however, can become a temptation. You say, what's the difference? When we are tempted, James tells us in chapter 1 and verses 12 through 18 that we have been led away by our own passions. In other words, what James says in chapter 1 and verse 13 holds true, that God doesn't tempt anyone. God doesn't send something their way with the intention of causing them harm and danger. He doesn't do that to us. Now that then begs another question, doesn't it? Jesus says, lead us not into temptation. James says, count it all joy if temptation comes. If we're to count it all joy, and if trials are intended to strengthen our faith, and we're such holy people, why don't we just say, bring it on, buddy? 
Why don't we just say, bring on the trial. If this trial is supposed to strengthen my faith, give me Jesus, more of Jesus, Lord. If, if that's the true ambition of our heart, then why wouldn't we pray, give us this trial? Let's see if I can put it delicately. Because I, I believe everyone here knows the difference. If a trial is intended to strengthen our faith, why don't we pray to be led in the trial? Because all of us enjoy the harvest more than the seed time. Because all of us enjoy eating the corn more than shucking the corn. We all enjoy smelling a rose from our garden than pulling the weeds out. We enjoy eating the meal more than the preparation of the meal or even especially that last part, putting away the dishes. I wish dishes could put away themselves, especially laundry. I don't know if y'all are like that, but man, I'm fine throwing the laundry in and letting it, that thing tumble them around. I can even take them and put them in the dryer. But then after that, after the washer and the dryer phase, and it, I'd struggle there. I don't know about y'all. But see, listen, when the seed time comes, and when we must prepare for the meal or put the dishes away or fold the laundry, we have our Lord gently leading us and taking us by the hand, telling us to pray this way. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. You see, it's not enough for us to just pray for forgiveness. As great as forgiveness of sins is, it's not enough. Jesus has taught us that sins must be resisted altogether. You say, how long do we resist? We resist as long as we have the need for bread. And God has given us the way to resist. And the way to resist is praying. You see, it's through prayer that we put our hopes in God. And it's in prayer that we put our hopes in the God who has taught us to pray. Who Himself, this God, has said, I'll be with you. My right hand will guide you. I have you firmly in the palm of my hand. I've inscribed you right there. I'll never let you go. He said that He would never leave us, nor would He ever forsake us. And He has come alongside us, given us this prayer so that He could give us this confidence to know that as we walk, as we are tempted, as we are trialed, as evil comes our way, He is there with gentleness and with love and compassion to lead us every step. Would you pray with me this morning? As you're praying, as every head is prepared for prayer, I just want to ask this morning, what trials are you facing? Why don't you ask God to help you with that trial right now? Another thing for you to consider as you pray is what sins right now are you needing deliverance from? Maybe the trial is so difficult that you don't want to speak of it. It hurts. Maybe the temptation is so embarrassing that you don't even want to mention it either. But God is there. And He's taught you to pray, lead us not into temptation, 
but deliver us from evil. You see, if He is your Father, if you believe in Jesus and have received the free offer of His salvation, He's in heaven. His name is Hallowed. His kingdom is coming. His will be done. He'll give you bread. He'll give you forgiveness. And if you just ask Him, He'll give you deliverance as well. Father, You, the awesome God, have heard our prayers. And Lord, not only have You heard our prayers through the ministry of Your Spirit and Your Word, You've directed our prayers. We depend upon You now, O Lord. This Lord who's taught us to pray, lead us not into temptation and deliver us from evil. For every heart that's weary this morning, may they find you there, ready to greet them, more ready to answer than we are even to pray. Minister to us, we pray, and we trust you. In Jesus' name, amen. We pray God will use this message for His glory in your life. If you would like more information, please feel free to contact us at info at OxfordBaptistChurch.com. Oxford Baptist Church is located in Oxford, Georgia. If you're close, we'd love to meet you.